Good morning. My name is Hindel Grossman. I'm a divorce attorney and the owner of a law firm called Grossman & Associates in Newton. Welcome to Inside Divorce, a podcast series on divorce-related issues. Today, I'm sitting with Brad Aragon, a senior loan officer at Loan Depot, and we're going to talk about financing real estate and the best way to finance real estate during and after a divorce. You know, I find it, it's interesting. I find a lot of people uh, having gone through a divorce, yeah. uh, are, it, 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 it's a, obviously a very emotional process. Um, having a fixed mortgage payment is somewhat comforting. Even though you think I'm gonna be out of this house in seven years, at least you don't feel like, oh my gosh, my payment's gonna change at the end of seven years. It could go up and then what am I gonna do? I don't know. So good morning, Brad. Good morning. Thank you. Today we're going to talk about um, the industry of mortgage financing um, with Brad, who is a seasoned mortgage professional, whose mortgage knowledge and exceptional customer service has allowed him to develop a reputation as one of the local leaders in mortgage lending services. Brad brings a unique perspective to the real estate industry. He began his career as a real estate agent and then moved on to his passion, which is real estate finance. He started as a loan officer for one of the leading banks in Massachusetts and now works 28 years later for one of the top privately held mortgage lenders in Massachusetts called Loan Depot. He's licensed in Massachusetts, in Rhode Island, and in New Hampshire. He helps people refinance properties, um, purchase properties, and a variety of other financing options with, related to real estate. Now, Brad's uh, a lot of very valuable information to tell us today about how real estate financing relates to divorce. And we're gonna set up a hypothetical situation so that we can talk about uh, how Brad's work would help the people in the divorce scenario. So today we're gonna to imagine that we're talking about um, a wife who wants to remain in the marital home with the children pursuant following a divorce. And we're going to imagine that there's a house with a million dollar fair market value and that there's a mortgage on that property for half a million dollars, so that there's equity for half a million dollars. And so we're gonna talk about how that wife might buy out her ex-husband's interest in that house, mm -hmm. what the wife would need to do process-wise, and what kind of financial history that she will need, both in her employment, her income, her income, as well as how the child support and the alimony are structured. Uh, in order to qualify her to do that pursuant to the divorce. So Brett, first would you walk us through what the process is if this wife were to come to you and apply for financing in order to buy out her husband's interest in the house? Sure, sure. So uh, oftentimes people come to me, they're thinking about getting divorced. They, they, they're not quite there yet. And so the process would be, we would look at, as a pre-qualification standpoint, we would look at their income, their assets, and their liabilities. Um, when you're, sometimes when you're, you're dealing with the wife in this particular case, some of the liabilities, for example, the mortgage may or may not be in both names. So that's something we're gonna need, need to be able to get a little bit of a history on, make sure that that mortgage was paid on time. But we're also gonna be looking at the income uh, to see if she was working. Um, and if she hasn't been working recently, if she was stay-at-home mom, as may be the case in this, uh, we'll go back to see, was she uh, how many years she was working for before she left the workplace, and is she planning on going back into it? Uh, so we'll evaluate kind of all of those things to look at. 
Okay. So you'll sit with this this particular wife and look at her assets and liabilities and her work history. Mm-hmm. And then and then what's what inform you get this information from her. What happens with this information? So I take a look at it. We look at what's the goal. Is the goal here to just uh, 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 take care of the mortgage, refinance the mortgage? In this particular case, we talked about I think her trying to stay in that particular property. So what we would do is evaluate her ability to carry that debt based on her projected cash flow. Okay. So that's the first thing. Because obviously we want to get within somebody's comfort zone. doesn't matter what all the bankers think. If they are not going to be comfortable with that monthly payment, that's very, very key. And there's a number of ways we can look at that. Uh, one way is we can look at the timeline. How long is she going to have to stay in that property? If she just wants to stay in that property long enough to get the kids through high school and maybe college, then maybe we can look at a shorter term product, maybe like an adjustable rate mortgage that's fixed for seven to 10 years, which may reduce her cash flow or maybe even an interest-only mortgage where it's fixed for that period of time, but it's interest-only. So that's something that we would look at, make sure that she's comfortable with that. Um, I would look at her credit, make sure that her credit scores are where they need to be and that there's no credit issues there. And then again, we would look at that projected income. What is she going to be making? What does she anticipate uh, she's going to be making based on, on the settlement? Okay. So in our hypothetical situation, if there's a half a million dollars worth of equity, then the buyout of her husband, let's say theoretically it's $250,000. So she's got to carry not only the existing mortgage of 500000 but also an additional 250000 so that the husband can be bought out of his interest in the house. That's right? correct. Okay. That's correct. And so after you've examined um, the information you just described, does it go to another part of the loan depot, for example, in order to make a determination of whether she's qualified? So, well, what happens is I would I would do the preliminary analysis yeah. myself. It would not go to underwriting until we had all of the key pieces to be able to have a, a, a loan be underwritten, which would include the divorce decree. It would include an appraisal on the property, establishing that there's value and equity there to okay. tap and, and so forth and so on. My evaluation piece, the preliminary part is I would look at her uh, W-2s, assuming she was working, uh, I would look at the projected income, but I wouldn't put the loan into uh, uh, submission. I wouldn't put it into effect at the application until we had a final decree, because as I'm sure you can imagine, there's some variations that can happen as far as cash flow and such. Right. Uh, and the way that that decree is written uh, could also influence how much income we're going to be able to use. All right. So this wife comes comes to you and you do a primary, a preliminary rather analysis of whether she'll, she'll qualify, but the divorce isn't final. Let's say in our scenario, the divorce isn't final yet. Right. So you're really projecting what could happen potentially if certain terms were included in the separation agreement. That's right. Which you're calling this divorce decree. Right. So how would you suggest that divorce agreement is structured so that she can um, enhance her chances of refinancing? Well, that's that's a great question because a lot of the divorce decrees that I see after the fact are structured in such a manner, while they may be beneficial to uh, the wife in this particular case, they uh, are detrimental when it comes to qualifying for a mortgage. Um, so one of the things that I would suggest is having a minimum uh, uh, fixed income that's going to be uh, coming through stated very clearly in that divorce decree. As of recent, we've had situations where uh, the wife's, the ex-wife's income is going to be a percentage of uh, the, the ex-spouse's income, and it's and it's written as such. The problem with that is underwriting doesn't know where to go with that. They have no way of establishing a bottom line and nothing to kind of hold their hat on. Because it's not a fixed number. Because it's not a fixed number, yep. and underwriters are very conservative, and they have to be. Yeah. Um, so it's really important that you have that minimum 
uh, established. Um, and and the other thing is, even if that's going to change down the road, it, again, there's a uh, there's a three year continuance window of income. So if you're going to have a, a step down of income at any point or a variation, you need to at least have that minimum established for that three year period as dictated in that divorce decree. And that will allow me to use that income when qualifying. Um, the other thing is, is that's really important is, 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 is timing. Um, there's a minimum period of time that the, uh, the wife in this particular case must uh, document receipt of that alimony and or any child support income, even if it's dictated in that divorce decree before we'll be allowed to use it. And that period of time is that six month period. So before it counts for your purposes, for underwriting purposes, is <clears throat> six months from the date of the divorce judgment? Is that what you're saying? That's correct. Okay. That's your court recorded <clears throat> divorce judgment. That's so it right. doesn't matter how many months or even years child support or alimony were paid before the divorce judgment for your purposes. That's correct. Yeah. Okay. So, because people are very confused sometimes about that durational period before the divorce and whether that counts. Yeah. And, um, so it really encourages people to get divorced sooner. Exactly. <laughs> it moves everything up. Exactly. Well, you know, it's, it's, it's funny how we see things because oftentimes we'll see a separation that will go on for often, sometimes years. Um, I have a case right now where people are actually technically still married. Um, and they're, they've been living apart for years. Mm. So, and then there's, there's child support going back, but it's not technically child support for your purpose, for right. our purposes, yeah. uh, because there's no written formal court, uh, court judgment. So, yeah. um, that it, it can be very, very confusing. So it is important that they get divorced sooner and that, that, that they, they, uh, get that document kind of wrapped up and that they plan accordingly, because obviously we cannot buy out that ex spouse until that happens and what's more is you've got uh you've got to be able to have that cash flow to be able to carry those mortgage payments what you don't want to do is be in that home for that during that six month period and then fall behind even you know by 30 days mm -hmm. then when you come to us and all of a sudden it's a problem mm -hmm. so which can trigger all sorts of other things in a divorce degree like selling a home and things like that yeah that's an often often a concern because i often find in me probably see this too, is that one spouse takes care of the finances more than the other spouse. Mm -hmm. And if in our hypothetical, it's the wife who hasn't really been that involved in the finances and the husband's concerned that his credit is going to be affected if suddenly she isn't timely in her mortgage payments when she's responsible for making them. Yeah. And, um, you know. it's. I had a very interesting case recently where the, the ex-husband was um, paying the mortgage and deducting it from her uh, alimony and child support just to make sure that his credit wasn't being impaired. I see and that. And we had to document that. Yeah, I see that happen a lot. So getting back to the um, the counting of the six months from the judgment date. So, you know, often prior to the divorce judgment, which is the final event, mm -hmm. um, there is something called temporary orders. You know, while the case is, while the divorce case is pending, it's a court, actually a court order saying that someone will pay alimony and or child support. Mm -hmm. So that doesn't matter to you, does yeah. it? That, no. that temporary order. Right, okay. right. It's all subject to change until that final document is recorded. Right, right. So how do you deal with the variations in people's lives? You, you touched on that a little bit a minute ago about you know children emancipate and then the child support may be reduced or alimony may be for, it is for a fixed term now um, called the duration. Mm -hmm. So how does underwriting or, or you and your preliminary analysis handle that? Well, the, the, the good news is if, I'm speaking with the client early enough before the divorce decree has been carved out. Um, I can often help uh, 
you know, at least give some of the knowledge so that you as a divorce attorney can carve it in such a manner that they're able to uh, to, to set it up that they can refinance down the road. Things that might not be, and things that are common sense don't always translate into my world. So um, I, so things such as, you know, the three years of continuance, um, uh, uh, stipulating, for example, in the areas of child support, um, there's an often clause in there that says, should the child go on to college, child support will continue until such and such an age. Other than that, it cuts off at 18. Well, in my world, that's there's that gray area. Even if they're in college, the question is, will they stay in college? And if they leave college, does that child support drop off there where we can't count it as income? So if, it, if the divorce decree spells out that it goes to age 22 or 23, um, then that, you know, given that their intention is to go to college, then that will often offset it. We have to take the most conservative approach. So when someone sits with me, I'm going to look at that and make sure that they qualify using underwriting guidelines mm -hmm. as a whole. Um, there's we often fall into the gray area, and I'll do my best to make a case for that. Um, so, for example, sometimes I will see a situation where uh, the wife gets an income uh, that's a minimum, but there is a bonus component. Uh, the husband may get a bonus, and maybe she gets 50% of that bonus. Um, assuming we can get some cooperation with the husband, which sometimes we're, we were able to do. I'm, I'm often in a position where I'm speaking directly with the ex-husband uh, and, and can get some of that documentation because it's in their best interest as well right. to be taken off of that loan so they can move on with their life. Yes. Um, so I can get things uh, such as historical bonuses. If, if I can see that he's received bonus for the last two or three years of X amount and uh, the wife is gonna be getting 50% of that, then I can often uh, make a case for underwriting to be able to use that income to help us qualify. Yeah, okay. You become an advocate for the applicant. Absolutely. I think that's one of the most uh, enjoyable parts of my job. Uh -huh. Yeah, the historical earnings are important, but sometimes they're very variable. Or even if they were consistent in the, in the past, they're inconsistent in the future. Well, that's where I think that right. having done this for 30 years, it kind of comes in. I've pretty much seen every possible case you can imagine, yeah. um, uh, you know, from, from people that before they're divorced all the way through after they've been divorced for a while and trying to put these pieces together. And there is a little bit of gray that we can we can try to, to push and I can, yeah. I can fall back on some things. So. I imagine one challenging thing is when a child goes to college and, and the impact on child support, because judges vary a lot on that. You know, theoretically, child support continues till the child's emancipation, which is graduation from college or into the military or getting married. But for the most kids, it's, you know, they go on to college. And there may be a gap year, first of all, after high school, before college. So how is that treated? Um, and then there's so some judges that say that child support can, you know, depending on who's paying for the college, you know, that the child support doesn't have to continue at the same levels, particularly if the same person who's paying child support is going to pay the majority of the tuition. Right. Um, so it doesn't automatically terminate at 18, but we don't know how long the judge will continue child support. And it's, it depends on the circumstances of each case and who's paying, you know, who's paying for the college tuition. Right, right. So, and there's often a step down, as you indicated, yeah. too. And so underwriters will always move to the most conservative so they're going to look at that step down. If the child may be graduating this year, but I'm looking at three years of continuance, they're going to take that conservative, that step down approach and use that as income. But how does underwriting assume what the new step down number will be? Uh, if it's not dictated in there, that's a challenge. Yeah. They, may, they may not even use any of it at all at that point because they say, well, as you, you use the perfect example, a gap year. What happens then? They've graduated mm -hmm. high school per the strict 
writing of the divorce decree at alimony can I mean the child support can can yeah. stop technically. Yeah. So well, it depends on how the word how it's worded, but right, not, right, not necessarily. Right. It's right. become pretty common for a gap year these days. So yeah. with, I think if there's a general expectation that the child will go to college just a year later, um, child support will probably continue. And it depends on whether the child continues to live with one of the parents. Right. And is principally dependent on that parent during the gap year, or if the child has their own income, you know, goes off and lives somewhere else and has their own income. Right. Uh, so many, you know, lives change, right? Absolutely. <laughs> yeah. And then the other thing that probably impacts your decision is that there's new child support guidelines. You know, it ch they changed in 2013 and they're changing this summer too. Wow. So the, uh, the, the worksheet, you know, will change the number a little bit. I don't know if it will be higher or lower than it is now, mm -hmm. but the calculation will be different. Yeah, yeah, that will be interesting because we do see all sorts of variations as I know in your work, you, you're constantly looking at those things and offsets and uh, it, it is interesting, that's for sure. Yeah, does underwriting handle um, child support differently than alimony as far as giving it weight as income? Um, well, it, well, alimony, I mean, from, from our standpoint, when we're looking at a tax return, alimony, if, we're, if we're, there's a historical perspective, so alimony is taxable, so we're gonna be able to see that yeah. as it comes through child support is not. As far as the weight goes, as long as there's three years continuance of both, yeah, um, they weight them pretty pretty equally. Three years meaning in the future. So if you're looking at you know day one, you have to have certainty. You Loan Depot and your underwriters, I imagine you're talking about right. certainty that it's going to continue for three years into the future from that point. That's right. And so really what you're talking about is if you build in that six month historical perspective, yeah. you're talking three and a half years of continuance right. minimum, uh, and then it can can change. Right. All right. So um, what's the optimal time for someone to apply for financing? I would say it's probably good to have a consultation with me early on if they're, if they're working with you and such, and you're trying to figure out what is what would this look like? What would this mortgage? What could this mortgage payment look like? And obviously, we can't lock into an interest rate at that point. We don't have a you know a, a signed divorce decree, and and I would imagine a lot of the assets are still maybe going in that division process. So we're not quite sure where we're going to be. Um, but at least I can often give some assurance and some comfort as to this is these are some of the options that you could be looking at. These are some of the things that you can do. A perfect example. Uh, is um, going back to work. If they're going back to work uh, and they've been in the workforce before they left uh, to raise children, we look for six months on that. Well, that six month timeline of receipt of alimony and child support can also be accruing while they're back in the workplace. Mm -hmm. So when they apply for me with me, uh, six months have gone by, I've got a work history, you know, with pay stubs uh, in a similar line of work. Uh, and I've got that that income for child support and alimony, so it all kind of comes together. So probably the consultation, maybe um, when they're when they're thinking about getting divorced, and then the application itself, I would say, is six months after the the recorded day of divorce decree. Mm -hmm. Okay, but they can during that six month period really set up their lives to maximize the approval of the loan. That's exactly right, and I can give them some advice, things like not maxing out credit cards. You know, trying to there's there's certain things we can do to try to drive their credit scores up. Also, they can look at their credit beforehand um, and see what it looks like. How much credit is in their name? You brought up a great point, which is in many uh, situations, one marital partner has the primary finances. There's sometimes the, the wife is not on some of these things. And so there's not a lot of, of, of credit history. Mm -hmm. uh, so that's also very important is building that credit history. 
recognizing. I actually see the reverse, that sometimes a spouse doesn't know that their name is on a credit card being used by the other one. Oh, yeah. And, uh, and they find out that their credit has been impacted in ways they didn't expect. Yeah, I, yeah I've, I've seen There's that as too. well. Yes, I've seen both sides. Yeah, the secret credit card swindle, you know, and then constantly flipping credit cards to lower interest and then you kind of lose track of who's on which one. Exactly, exactly. And that's a big that's a big thing that we see a lot too is this constant moving of money. And that can be very challenging because in my world, every dollar has to be accounted for. So there has to be a paper trail. So when money keeps changing accounts uh, or if, uh, if credit cards keep getting rolled over, um, it, it can be a real challenge because credit reports a snapshot in time. So it may be that it was just this account was just opened up and now has a new balance on it of six thousand dollars, and that account had six thousand was transferred. Well, we're actually going to use both. So it's important that you try to kind of keep everything as calm as can be. Oh, uh, that's an from, interesting from a financial standpoint. So if you roll over a credit card balance from one to another during the, this may be the six month period, for example, in in the credit analysis for the loan application for mortgage, they're going to use both balances? They may, depending on the timing of the credit report. Oh. Credit reports are often 30 days behind. What will yeah. probably show up is the new card will show up as an inquiry, and we'll have to document what happened with that. But the old card shows up with the balance. So during that interim phase, um, it, we may have to debt them for both because mm. we can't see the payoff on the credit report unless we sometimes we're able to get a credit update on certain things and see that it in fact was rolled over to to another but the other thing is is that um you know when when you do when you apply for new lines of credit it creates a credit inquiry which can impact your credit scores so whether it's applying for a credit card applying for a car loan um, if uh, applying for furniture if you do a lot of that the six months prior to your credit score could be lower than what you thought it was uh, when you come in, and that's not helpful either. Yeah, there seems to be a general um, confusion about that. Just uh, just the inquiry can actually lower a credit score. If there's enough of them, absolutely. And what is enough, or what is too many? So, for example, if you're looking for a new car and you apply within a, a week, and there's, let's say there's three or four credit inquiries from different places, that's only gonna be equal to like one inquiry because it's understood that if you're applying for a car you're looking around and you know it that's the the impact will be be minimal i would guess we'd still have to document the car loan obviously um, but if you stretch that out over a six or 12 month period and every month you apply for a car loan uh, it's going to look like you are uh, uh having trouble getting getting credit and it's going to show up as a, as numerous inquiries which could impact your score um, so the, the rule of thumb is when, that when you're ta after you start talking to me, don't, um, unless you're talking about a projected window a year out, don't apply for any new credit cards. Don't be late on anything you have as far as credit cards yeah. or any uh, debt obligations. Uh, and, and just kind of uh, try to keep money settled. Don't keep throwing it from one account to the other account, so forth and so on, because we have to track all of that. All right. And what about closing credit cards? Does that impact credit score? That's a wonderful question. And the answer is absolutely yes. Oh. So um, I'm really glad you asked that, um, especially in the case where you've got uh, joint credit cards. And, and I would think that oftentimes they're in a, what makes common sense is let's close this. The challenge with that is uh, from a credit score strictly standpoint, the longer you have a credit history, the stronger that 
that impact is on your credit score positively. So if you have a new car that you just opened up in the last year and you had a joint card uh, uh, that was you know, 12 years old and you close that joint card, that's gonna have a lot more of an impact because now it just looks like you have a card that's you've only had credit for one year, this one is closed. So you, what you wanna do is you wanna try to leave that, if you can, leave that other card open and maybe uh, one party gets removed as an authorized user or, or, or vice versa. Mm. But okay. uh, yeah, you want to try to do that. The longer the, the longer the credit history, the stronger the impact it is on your credit score. Okay. And just getting back to qualifying for, um, let's in the refinance and our hypothetical situation with this wife who wants to stay in the marital home, what kind of credit ratios are commonly used now? Or debt to equity ratio, I guess it's called. Right, right. So in the example uh, that we're talking about, um, which would Assuming that you know we've got a, a five hundred thousand dollars existing mortgage, five hundred thousand dollars equity. When we do add that equity buyout, we're going to be at seven hundred and fifty thousand dollars. So seven hundred and fifty thousand dollars on a single-family home in our greater area, greater Boston area, is going to be a considered a jumbo mortgage. And jumbo mortgages cut off at forty-three point zero zero debt to income. What that means is that for every dollar that that ex-spouse is is making gross their total debts, including housing payment, uh, principal and interest, taxes, insurance, as well as any other debts they're responsible for, credit cards, car loans, anything like that, um, that can be up to 43 cents on the dollar. And that, and there's a very strict cutoff on that. Once you cross over that, it's it, 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 there's lots of new lending laws that came out under uh, the QM rule, Qualified Mortgage Rule, and it's very, very strict. You, you really have to kind of bring it under that level. Okay, so if this wife has to borrow $750,000 in order to stay in this house, I imagine there are several products that she could look at. One is interest only, which would mean that her payment's a little bit lower. Now, right, that, and that's true. However, <clears throat> the qualification on an interest-only mortgage is actually oftentimes stricter than it would be on a 30-year fixed. And the reason for that is, is because while an interest-only is more comfortable for that seven-year period, the principal and interest portion of that loan kicks in for about a 23-year period. So what you do is you take the full balance of that loan, assuming she's only paying that interest-only portion for the seven years, and you amortize it over 27, excuse me, 23 years, yeah. uh, based on what that adjusted rate probably might would be at that time. So it can be it, the underwriting is actually stricter on that, but from a personal standpoint, it can be a lot more comfortable. Uh -huh. Because so, the payment, the monthly payment is lower. Exactly. And it might be easier to qualify under that 43% ratio. Exactly. All right. So another option is uh, an adjustable rate mortgage for, but that's fixed for a period of time. Right. That would be fully amortized or even a fixed rate. You know, I find it, it's interesting. I find a lot of people uh, having gone through a divorce, yeah. uh, are, it, 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 it's a, obviously a very emotional process. Um, having a fixed mortgage payment is somewhat comforting. Even though you think I'm going to be out of this house in seven years, at least you don't feel like, oh my gosh, my payment's going to change at the end of seven years and it could go up and then what am I going to do? I don't know. You know, at that point, my child support or alimony may be uh, uh, falling off or, or being reduced. So this having that comfort of having that fixed payment is can, can be helpful. Yeah. Well, I guess people don't know what the future will bring. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. There's uncertainty about that. Well, very interesting. Are you noticing any trends lately? I know the interest rates went up a little bit, but um, you know, it seems to me that the divorce business is pretty consistent. So are you, um, people are coming to you for refinancing 
incident to a divorce. You're seeing a lot of that kind of work. Yeah, we are. We are seeing a fair amount of that. Um, it's. Uh, uh, as far as interest rates go, I, I think interest rates, you know, will probably rise over over time. Uh, that seems to be the trend that we're seeing. Um, but uh, as far as the, you know, the the impact on, with divorce, we're usually able to help people work through it. It's it's understood that, uh, you know, and again, by sitting down and speaking with me early, we can look at what's it going to cost because maybe ultimately the decision is we need to sell the house. I mean, and those are really frank conversations that you want to have early on, um, you know, so that you can you can, as you, in doing your job, structure it accordingly. Yeah, um, that's a difficult conversation. I have, you know, a client right now where the house is valued at more than a million dollars, and they've got six hundred thousand of equity, and you know, she can't she can't qualify to buy them out. Right. So she's gonna have to sell. And it's, it's a painful decision. It is. It is. And, 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 and actually, I can be somewhat helpful in that, too, because, you know, I guess half the time I'm a loan officer, half the time I'm a psychologist. Yes. Um, I, I can <laughs> understand a lot of the emotional impact. And, and I can often walk people through and say, let's look at this. I understand there's history there. And, but, OK, what have you sold? What could you do with that money afterwards? Could you buy another property? Could you buy a, maybe a condominium and be mortgage free? What would that feel like? Mm -hmm. And so we can talk about those things. It's, yeah. it's having those honest conversations early on that can help, I think, a lot because it not only enables them to look at the financials, but it also enables them to see a little bit into the future. There, there, there's, there's life after divorce and, and what could it look like? If they do want to stay in the house, then we can try to look at that and see what's involved. And maybe, you know, in the example we talked about, um, uh, he's being bought out, but maybe if we delay that buyout, until seven years or, or 10 years out, and we just refinance the existing mortgage of 500,000, maybe that allows her to stay in the home for that period of time, and he gets his equity uh, later. Later, yeah. And so that's, uh, that if I know- If the spouse placing. is willing to wait. Yes, exactly, right. exactly. Now, it's a great option if the spouse is willing to wait. But in the meantime, the, the spouse who's not living in the house um, has, has their credit impacted because they're still on an existing mortgage. Exactly. So they're able to move on with their life. If they can wait for their equity yeah. and and move on with their life and buy another property themselves. If they have enough income. If they have enough income. qualify for another mortgage. Right? right, right. And assets. Obviously, they need a down payment. Yeah. And maybe, that's, maybe it's a combination. Mm -hmm. Maybe it's a partial equity buyout. Mm -hmm. You know, we, we're, I, can't, I can't give you the full 250, but you know what? I can give you... Fifty or a hundred thousand dollars, and maybe that changes things a bit. So it's that type of back and forth where you and I might be working together along with your client to try to come up with a solution where everybody's going to win. Right. Well, then you become a financial planner, right? <laughs> a real estate planner. There you go. Right. All right. Is there anything else that you want to add to uh, our circumstances today? For um, example. No, I just you know I think that the most important thing is to get uh, professional advice from someone like yourself. Um, or, or you know, speak with someone like me as early as possible. Uh, I think by building a, a strong team to help through a, a difficult situation, it can make all the difference in the world. I absolutely um, agree with that. You know, there's so much emotions that are flying around when you have uh, practitioners that deal with this every day, as you do and as I do. Um, I, I think it can help a lot, and it can alleviate a lot of pain and suffering that can happen as a result of uh, mistakes being made along the way. Yeah.
I could see having you as a valuable part of that team because you know, there's almost always a marital home involved, um, and that's usually the, you know, often the largest asset of the marriage. So doing some really good financial planning before the divorce agreement gets signed would be really helpful so everybody knows where they stand. It's been very interesting. I've had a fair amount of success actually handling uh, both parties, uh, both exes, because they like the approach that we take. It's more of a consultative approach and 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 you know, not really looking at the emotion aspect of it, but saying, okay, let's look at the financial aspect. How can you both come out winning from this situation? What's going to, you know, and uh, it's it, it's worked out well. Well, you hit on something important. Both of them have to feel like they're winning or they've won or they neither have lost at least. Exactly, right? exactly. Brad, this has been great. I really appreciate it. And I'm going to take some of the advice, I, some of the things I learned today and use them in my negotiations. I appreciate that for myself. And I hope your listeners have learned something important today too. So I've been speaking to Brad Aragon, and he's at Loan Depot, uh, uh, helping people finance real estate. So Brad, how can pe- how can our listeners reach you? The best way to reach me is probably via my cell phone, and that's uh, 978-375-5531. Uh, you can also email me at bavergon, so it's B-A-V as in Victor, E-R-G-O-N, at loandepot.com. I myself am licensed in, uh, in New Hampshire, uh, and Rhode Island and Massachusetts, but through my company, uh, we can lend all over the country. Oh, so, that's good so to that's, know. Uh, that's helpful. Nationwide financial services. Absolutely. Thank you, Brad. You're very welcome. If you'd like more information about the topics covered in our podcast, please contact us at Grossman and Associates. You'll find a competent and experienced team of compassionate, responsive, and innovative legal professionals. Email me at hindell at grossmanltd.com. My first name is spelled H-I-N-D-E-L-L. Or call us at 617-969-0069. Thank you for listening.